0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: My earliest memories were of combing the buckshot out of my mother's long black hair after one of my father's violent attacks
2: on her. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed.
1: mother grabbed me by the hand and us taking off to the sand I was amazed at how brave I was he fired a shot just then a bunch of the shots hit my mother in the back of the head
2: that's John Post with the memory of his mother from when he was just five years old. John and his mother, Mary, were Simshian, an indigenous people from northwest BC and southeast Alaska. The stories of his family history are ancient, but the ones we're about to hear are more recent. They were shaped by over a century of upheaval, colonization, and a dramatic exodus of Tsimshian people from Canada to the United States.
3: I shall never again set foot on Canadian soil. And a party of our people searched the coast of southern Alaska and found a very suitable location at Port Chester on Annette Island.
2: John Post died in 2004, but his memory is kept alive by another important woman in his life, his daughter.
4: There was much testimony at last night's vigil about the importance sisterhood plays in survival for women on the streets. A prayer wall was covered in notes for each of the 50 missing women. There were also calls for those living outside the downtown east side to wake up to the racism, poverty, and abuse that keeps women trapped in such desperate lives.
2: Pamela Post, CBC News, Vancouver. Pamela Post is a Vancouver journalist. In this documentary, she traces her Simshian family history through colonization, epidemics, mental asylums, and two villages, both named Metlakatla. This is A Tale of Two Metlakatlas, My Matriarchs, the Missionaries, and Me.
4: I'm standing in the rain on Creek Street in Ketchikan, Alaska. It's the fall of 2022. I've come to the end of a decades-long journey, tracing the steps of my Simshian ancestors. The Simshian are an ancient indigenous people from northwest British Columbia and southeast Alaska, the people of the Potlatch, people whose lives were measured for millennia by the movement of the seasons, the fish, the berries, the animals.
1: This bird we are hearing in the background is what we, some call the And that means when we hear this bird doing his song, we know that pretty soon the, the berries are going to be ripe. And we call them the Semekisk, literally meaning he has the power of making the berries swipe down the uh, salmonberry country. He has control of making it either red or yellow.
4: That's my dad's cousin, Ben Bolton, a former chief of Kitsum-Kalem, speaking in the 1960s. The ancient Simshian web has been spun from a complex matrilineal society, rich in language, culture, cosmology, creation stories, and worldview. Simshian means people inside the Skeena River, here since time before memory. But if you read the history books, the many radio, stage plays, and documentaries written about these events... You'd only know them as the heathen Indians.
3: I simply said that Satan had reigned here long enough and that it was high time his rule was disturbed. Uh, uh... I
4: grew up far from my Simshan family's traditional village of Kitsum Kalem in northwest British Columbia in the big city of Vancouver, many kilometers to the south. I grew up removed from Nitsitsu, my grandmother's language and culture, except for the time machine that was Naguadu. My father.
1: Girls, did I ever tell you about the little fish called Oolikin? They meant a lot to the Simshian people, these little oily fish. The oil or grease of the Oolikin was like gold for your health and for giving and trading. But, oh, man, the smell when they were fermenting them for grease. Hoo-wee. That smell The unbelievable stink of millions of rotting hooligan.
4: (laughs) My dad was more the age of a grandfather to me. And because of that, he was a rare and precious time machine into the past. And the stories he told me of my matriarchs, all of whom, with the exception of his youngest sister, my Auntie Fran, had died long before I was born.
1: My mother Mary was only four foot eleven inches tall. I would hear her and Jemima, her sister, speaking Indian, but they would stop when any white people came near. She was a devout Anglican who never took a drink or smoked a cigarette in her life, as far as I know.
4: To our young ears, some of his stories were dark and troubling.
1: He would just have these fits where he thought mother was some terrific enemy of his. He would beat her up. One of the first things I remember is having his thumb in my mouth when he went after my mother with a knife. I was trying to protect Mother.
4: I've come here to find healing, to repair broken threads, to name and release our family's traumas in a good way, in the Simshian way. My rain jacket is pockmarked with little burn holes from the fire ceremony we built the day before at a spot where my grandmother and my dad, as a little boy, fought for their lives, one of so many times. Though he's long gone now, I feel my dad with me as I look down the wooden pier into the stream that runs through the center of Ketchikan, watching the spawned out pink salmon dodge the gulls and the playful seals and otters. I didn't realize, as a little girl, my dad's stories were teaching me about what Canada has acknowledged as a genocide.
1: I remember a missionary preacher, an old guy who taught us Sunday school one year, told us that the totem poles were made by the devil, that they were the devil's picture. I remember throwing a totem pole into the Skeena River with some other kids because this old missionary, an evangelical, told us to because the devil made them. We were... Drowning the Devil's Picture. This missionary was threatened by the totem poles because he thought they represented a rival religion. Some of the missionaries held this view that the totem poles were made by the devil or were the devil's picture. But boy, the anthropologists were sure scooping them up.
4: The stories of my Simshian matriarchs come to me in fragments. One fragment that I hold dearly sits on my mantelpiece. It's a small, tattered diary covered in red buckram from the year 1946. It belonged to my Aunt Barbara, my dad's oldest sister, the eldest child of five born on the Skeena River. One of many mythical-to-me matriarchs, Barbara died long before I was born. In 1946, Dizzy Gillespie was topping the charts, and she should have been swing dancing to his big band music. But the closest she got was listening to it from her bedside radio. She was in the Tronquille Tuberculosis Sanatorium in Kamloops, the same place she would die of TB, still a young woman, seven years later.
5: October 12, 1946. Oh, heck. Why can't I make myself about ten years younger? 25 would be so much better than 35. There's so many things I'd like to do. Books I'll never read, plays I'll never see, and a whole world of music I'll never hear. It's not fun being a TB croc. But one
4: entry, dated October 14th, takes a different, softer, sadder tone. It's about her mother Mary, my Simshan grandmother, who also
5: died relatively young, nine years earlier. October 14th, mother's birthday. If I could only write your story so your name would live forever, and the stories and legends you told us of the past, if only I were clever and could string words like silver beads on silken thread for everyone to see. Silver beads on silken thread,
4: Those words have stayed with me as a challenge of sorts, a torch to pick up decades after my aunt wrote them about her mother, my grandmother Mary, as Barbara lay dying slowly of a disease that had been unknown to her mother's
5: people for thousands of years before Europeans brought it. Trunk 1941.
4: I also found a poem she wrote in those yellowing pages a lament for her Simshian homeland up north and the changes she, her mother, and grandmother had witnessed.
5: There's a hush now on the riverbank where the grim old totem poles stand and round the rough-hewn lodge where once brown-skinned children played, the weeds and bushes grow. For the engine has taken on white man's airs, and the white man cares for the totem poles.
4: I'm Simchian on my dad's side and German-Canadian on my mother's side. Unlike my dark hair and eyed sister, I inherited my Nordic-German mother's fair colouring and the white privilege that goes with it. But I got my native families round the ale, or cheeks, my Auntie Barbara's cheeks, and my dad Simpsian Gold, heart, his spiritual nature, love of story, music, and even the corny jokes that we grew up with.
1: What did the Buddhist monk say to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything!
4: (laughs) My dad, like my Auntie Barbara, used Indian humor to get through the many tough times being native in a white man's world required. As a longtime CBC News reporter, I covered Indigenous issues, visited some of the most impoverished reserves, and Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission into Indian residential schools. I filed scores of stories.
3: Meanwhile, the 50 women missing were remembered in a prayer vigil last night in Vancouver. Pamela Post was there and files this report.
4: On Canada's epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. News of murder charges added a fresh grief to the vigil. There were First Nations rituals, a smudge ceremony, songs and prayers offered by those who knew them best. As I've gathered the gossamer threads of my own matriarch's lives, found their words and traced their steps through years of archival searches and interviews with my elders, I've come to know and love them. I can feel the roots of the missing and murdered epidemic in our own family's legacy of both great love and great damage. In my own experiences with depression, anxiety and inexplicable shame. I interviewed my dad when he was near death, close to 90 years old and blind from glaucoma. He'd fought his final battle with the demons that haunted him since he was a little boy. I asked him what white people thought of Indians when he was growing up. Not that I didn't know, more to understand what he internalized as a child.
1: Indians? Indians were considered second-class citizens, no accounts, drunks. They were invisible.
3: The story you're about to hear is as old as British Columbia itself. It is the story of settlement, resettlement, courage and determination. It is the story of Metlakatla, the holy city.
4: That's from a radio feature called Metlakatla, The Holy City, broadcast on the CBC in the 1960s about two villages, both called Metlakatla. A story of how a lay British missionary set himself up as both a loving and dictatorial Christian evangelist among my ancestors. How he was involved in a historic exodus of over 800 Simshan people in great flotillas of canoes across open ocean, from one Metlakahtla in Canada to a new Metlakatla in Alaska. The missionary's name was William Duncan, from Yorkshire, England.
3: And I exhorted them to leave their sins and pray to Jesus. I also tried to impress upon them the certain ruin which awaited them if they continued in their present vices.
4: In 1857, at just 24 years old and unordained, he was sent by the Church Missionary Society to convert the so-called heathen Simshan Indians of Canada's Pacific Northwest with his Victorian Evangelical Gospel.
1: William Duncan arrived at Fort Simpson from his native England in October 1857
3: after accepting the post of missionary with the Pacific Coast Indians. Word of his impending arrival had preceded him and the Indians waited with mingled curiosity and hostility.
4: My great-grandmother Jane Smith was a member of the Gisboudwara or Killer Whale clan from Kitsam-Kalem, but she was born in Fort Simpson the same year Duncan arrived there. Many tribes of the Simpson had relocated to Fort Simpson, today called Lachwalams, a Somaliach name meaning the place of wild roses. In the 1850s it was the site of a major Hudson's Bay Company trading post. By the early 1860s, Duncan had learned some of the Simshan language and was keen to get his small number of converts away from the liquor guns and temptations of the Hudson's Bay Fort. And with about 50 Simshan people, moved to a spot near Prince Rupert that was a traditional wintering ground. It was called makhlakatla, meaning saltwater pass. Gamsiwa, white people, called it Metlakatla. Duncan was an autocrat who ruled this new Christian Indian village with an iron fist.
3: And do you remember Father Duncan being rather cruel to the natives when he was there? He, he always, I believe, looked for punishment to keep everybody in their place. Can you recall him beating anybody? Only what I heard, only what I heard. And did he ever hit you when you were at school? Many a times. And what did you do wrong? Oh. Uh, Boys couldn't help getting into mischief, talking, not
1: allowed to talk to anybody in in school and play in school.
4: Under Duncan's rule, there would be no more Indian-style cedar plank longhouses where several families lived. No more totem poles outside telling family stories and clan affiliations. Single-family European houses only, with fences and potato gardens.
3: You must give up Indian deviltry. You must cease calling in medicine, men, when you are sick. You must cease gambling. You must cease giving away property for display. You must cease painting your faces. You must cease indulging in intoxicating drinks. You must rest rest on the Sabbath. You must attend religious instruction. You must send your children to school.
4: The potlatch ban lasted till 1951, but there was always resistance. In this archival interview from 1960, my grandmother's sister, my great-aunt, Jemima, at the age of 75, recalls when she was young, coming upon a stash of beautifully carved and painted dance masks on an island in the Kitsilas Canyon, where an old Simshian village used to be.
3: 1908 was the first time I went up that way and there was no houses just totem poles and my husband and I went up through the canyon in a rowboat so we stopped on the on the island you see we landed there and climbed up on the rocks and we we saw a bunch of old you know split cedar just uh kind up leaning against a log, and then we saw a great big box there, and it was filled with, you know, the mask, masks, masks of all kinds. So and we looked at them and put them all back, and we have taken some home, but we didn't. They were nicely made too, they were real good. That would be all rotted away by now. Oh, uh, You know, when they're building their railroad, well, they cut some of the the totem pole down for firewood. And I guess they took all the masks away,
4: too. I shared my great-aunt's story with the chief counsellor of my family's geltzap, or village, of Kitsum-Kalem. Those masks were likely being hidden, he said, so that people could dance and hold ceremonies in secret, despite the risk of jail or beatings. In 1862, a devastating epidemic of smallpox came. It killed thousands of Simshian and other indigenous peoples across the coast. Over half of all indigenous people, from Puget Sound all the way up to Alaska, died. Most of the Simshian people living in Metlakatla survived. Missionary Duncan used this as propaganda to proclaim that God had spared the Christian Indians of Metlakatla and was using the disease to punish unbaptized Indians. The Simshian built a huge Gothic, European-style church in the village. Duncan bragged, It was the biggest church north of San Francisco and west of Chicago. The population of Metlakatla grew to almost a 1,000. But eventually, Duncan's need for total control clashed with the BC government and the Anglican Church who wanted him ordained and to perform communion. But Duncan was not a joiner. He said having his Indians consume the body of Christ in communion would incite their cannibal ways. Despite many loyal allies, Duncan made enemies everywhere. He was expelled from the church. He appealed to the U.S. government for a parcel of land in southeast Alaska on Tlingit territory. Over 800 Simshian people, including my great-grandfather Aaron Bolton and his young son Mark, became part of a history-changing migration. They left Metlakatla, B.C. for Alaska in flotillas of canoes in the spring of 1887 to form new Metlakatla under the American flag. My great-grandmother Jane stayed behind in BC with the three little daughters she had with Aaron. With the historic exodus of 1887, the Simshian people became locked between two colonial borders, and everything changed for the women in my family.
2: You're listening to Ideas and to a documentary called A Tale of Two Metlacatlas from journalist Pamela Post. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close.
5: Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb.
1: On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Through Line wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Until recently, the history of the two Metlakatlas was taught like this. After a falling out with the Church of England, a missionary named William Duncan led his flock of over 800 Simshian people from B.C. to Alaska in 1887. It was a harrowing ocean canoe voyage from Metlakatla, B.C. to New Metlakatla to form what the missionary styled as a new Christian utopian community. It's a dramatic tale. You might imagine Duncan at the front of the flotilla, pointing the way like Washington crossing the Delaware. The truth, according to some Simshian people, is that the Simshian made that epic voyage alone. They didn't follow Duncan. Rather, the missionary arrived in Alaska months later, in the comfort of a steamship. There is another half of that story as well. Many Simshian people stayed behind, like Pamela Post's great-grandmother. In this documentary, she follows the stories of the Simshian women in her family, dating back to that moment. And a warning, this documentary describes scenes of violence against Indigenous women.
4: It's June 2018, at a spot where the Skeena and Copper Rivers meet in northwest B.C. My cousin Bonnie and I are wading through tall grasses and clouds of angry mosquitoes, almost bushwhacking, as we try to find the worn headstones of our Simshian matriarchs that still remain. Jane Smith, our great-grandmother, is buried here, along with at least three of her daughters, including my grandmother Mary and Bonnie's grandmother Jemima. The heat, tall grasses and mosquitoes finally defeat us. Graves of my matriarchs, now grown over by brush and forgotten on land long since sold. Simshian women from ancient and noble lines, who lost their Indian status by marrying non-Indian men not allowed to vote, own property, or be buried with their people, invisible in death as white society tried to make them in life. Jane stayed behind when her husband left for Alaska with the others. She was pregnant with Jemima, her fourth child with Aaron Bolton, when she was suddenly married, or was she married off, at age 28, to a white man in his sixties, known to all as old Dave Stewart, an illiterate Scottish fish cannery boss. During this time of massive disruption, disease and loss, Simshian women's traditional roles, material wealth, ranks and privilege were dramatically altered by the combined patriarchies of the church and colonial governments. Simshian women had lost children and whole families to disease. From the early 1800s, alcohol and guns started distorting Simshan cultural practices like the potlatch. Settler men preferred to trade with Indian men, not women. The trade in liquor, firearms, and prostitution was booming, along with the fur trade, mining, development, and resource extraction. And the options left for displaced Indian women, like my great-grandmother Jane Smith, were the lowest jobs in the fish canneries or marrying white men. When they did, they lost their status as Indians under Canada's Indian Act and became dependents of their husbands. Despite ancient noble Simshan lineages, they would be listed as Scottish, English, Swedish, whatever their husbands were, in their census or death certificates. Jane went on to have three more daughters with old Dave Stewart at their orchard homestead where the Copper River meets the Skeena. She died at only 42, a young mother of seven.
0: Just before I got to the door, I had to pass in front of a window, and I looked as I passed, I looked and I saw the room full of people.
4: I found archival audio of missionary Robert Tomlinson Jr. stumbling upon her Skeena River funeral in the year 1900, though he never mentions her by name, just by her husband's.
0: They were having a funeral. Old Dave Stewart's wife had died. And i was just having a funeral
4: her sudden death left her three older daughters Maud, mary and jemima to raise their three little sisters ellen janet and priscilla several of jane's daughters followed suit by marrying white men jemima married a white man named sim doby when she was barely 20. after their wedding on what jemima thought would be her honeymoon trip The couple packed their bags and went to the train station in Vancouver for a visit to Sim's parents in Ontario. After a few uncomfortable minutes, Sim turned to his new wife and said he'd had a change of heart. She was too Indian-looking for him to present to his family. So he got on the train, leaving her on the platform in her best clothes with her bags. She had to find her way back up to the Skeena River on her own. Marriage to a white man went even worse for Mary, my grandmother. I remember the day the big envelope came in the mail, tearing open the top. But then waiting to look inside. I knew the contents would be disturbing. I lit some incense and smudged the envelope, myself and the room and steeled myself for what I would find inside.
5: I, Mary Post, married woman of USK, British Columbia, make oath and say as follows. We got married in October 1910 and lived at Copper River for for one year thereafter. When we left for Queen Charlotte Island, And lived there for 10 months.
4: A few of Jane's six daughters married white men, including my grandmother Mary. She married Paul Post, a tall American man from a prominent family of lawyers, judges, and senators from Michigan. What Mary didn't know was that Paul had paranoid schizophrenia and was estranged from most of his family. It appears manic paranoid episodes kept propelling him from place to place till he was finally in northwest canada where he met and married my little simshian grandmother i had heard the dark and troubling story in broad strokes all my life but asked for more details when i interviewed my dad near the end of his life
1: one of the first things i remember is having his thumb in my mouth when he went after my mother with a knife I was trying to protect mother.
4: Paul suffered increasing bouts of violent psychosis starting a few years after their marriage. My grandmother Mary had a child almost every year while Paul kept the family moving from the Skeena River to Haida Gwaii to Olympia, Washington, towns in Alaska, even all the way south to San Pedro, California, in a boat he owned. Their youngest boy, Peter, caught polio as a baby in Olympia during an outbreak there. The older children remember a short time of affluence and traveling first class on steamers, their white father buying their Simshian mother a stylish fur coat and jewelry, dressing their little boys in sailor suits. But it didn't last. Paul was falling into increasingly manic and psychotic episodes of paranoid delusions that took the ubiquitous racism of the day and magnified it. When under their spell, he believed there was an Indian conspiracy to kill him using their supernatural powers, and that
5: his tiny native wife, my grandmother Mary, was in on it. He accused me of the most illogical actions and crimes such as I could not humanly commit or do. He would seriously berate and accuse me of pricking him with poisoned needles and begin to abuse me in the most furious manner by kicking me and flaying me with a piece of wood or anything he could lay his hands on, or sometimes taking a loaded gun. He blamed her for their infant son Peter's polio and threatened
4: to kill her if he died. From the age of five to eight years old my dad had to try and save his mother's life during these terrible episodes of violence
1: he would just have these fits where he thought mother was some terrific enemy of his he would beat her up
4: in the envelope were paul's medical records i found my grandmother mary's declaration as interpreted through a notary describing her husband's state of mind and what she had endured I was struck that one of the many accounts of violence she described was the same story my dad had told me about when he was almost 90, recalling a traumatic incident that happened when the family was living in Alaska.
1: Another time, I remember we were in Valner Point near Ketchikan. I remember he jumped up to get the gun. Mother grabbed me by the hand. I was about five years old. We were running along the sand. I remember turning around and hollering my derision at him. I was amazed how brave I was. He fired a shot just then. According to my dentist, I still have some lead in my mouth from that incident, a bunch of the shots hit my mother in the back of the head.
5: It caused me much bodily injury, that my head bled so profusely that my clothes were a clotted mass of blood. He ran after me and tried to shoot the other cartridge at me, but fate or something interfered by it not going off. Otherwise, it would have finished me. He got me bait against a tree where he further beat me with the gun. When I managed to wrench the gun away from him and threw it into the water, he began beating me with his fists in a terrible rage, hissing into my face, calling me a bloodsucker and worse. He pounded my face till my teeth were knocked loose. When our eldest boy John bit his father's hands, and his rage subsided. <laughs> this is hard. heart. <laughs>
1: Biting him that hard sort of brought him back. I remember he commented about it afterwards, saying the kids got a lot of courage. This patient, age given as 36 years, was admitted to this institution
3: on April 9, 1921.
4: Paul Post, my grandfather, spent the remaining 34 years of his life in the Colquitts Asylum for the criminally insane near Victoria.
1: I remember he wrote home shortly after they took him away. He said that they had some very good medications and he would be home soon to look after mother and the kids. But that's the last we ever heard from him, as far as I can remember.
4: Mary was left to raise her five children, including her severely disabled son, Peter, on a small form of widow's pension on the Skeena River in Usk, B.C., but still married to Paul and disenfranchised by Canada from her rights as a Simshan woman, unable to even own her own land. According to my dad and Auntie Fran, she hauled water from the river, canned, smoked, and dried salmon— She was a sought-after midwife. She continued to be a devout Anglican who also spoke Somaliach, her Simshan language, shared cultural knowledge, and spoke to the ancestors. In a true Simshan trait, she abhorred greed and was unfailingly generous despite their poverty. At night, the older kids would fall asleep listening to their tiny mother gather Peter up in her arms and rock him while he cried singing him hymns till he fell asleep. Peter died at the age of 10, in the loving arms of his Noah, his mother, Mary.
2: In early
3: 2022,
4: I was making plans to visit my family's village of Kitsum-Kalem for cultural teachings, but my cousin Cynthia, a band counsellor for Kitsum-Kalem, urged me to go to Juneau, Alaska instead. It would be a rare chance, she said, to witness a major cultural festival and gathering of Tlingit, Simshian, and Haida dance groups called Sea Alaska Celebration. It's my first full day in Juneau, and I'm sitting on a bench by a giant sculpture of a breaching humpback whale, I'm with my friend and Simaliach teacher, Alfie Price. His Simshan name, Shigop, means wave maker. He's one of the founders of our Juno Simaliach Learners Group and a leader in cultural reclamation through dance groups here in Juno. Shigop is a gentle Simshan man, like my dad, respected for his cultural leadership and kindness. I've just told him the story of my grandmother and her mother before her.
1: And we use it to honor. Since matriarchs, now it's called the women's honor song. And the lyrics translate to um, "Walk softly, great lady." And that when we say "walk softly, walk gently," it means you know to go to go gently into the world, um, gracefully with honor. And we also say this "hagwil yan" if somebody's passed away. Uh, but it's uh, Walk Softly Great Lady, thank you and bless you for all the work that you've done. Walk Softly Great Lady, you're walking in the path of your grandmother. And so um, I'd like to sing that, if that's all right. Ah, hey-oh, 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 hey oh
4: In Juno is filled with the good medicine of Simshian song, dance, and drumming, and the beauty of this traditional gathering space of the Tlingit, Haida, and Simshian. I'm enchanted by the huge jet-black ravens that dot the city and have inspired the creation stories of the Simshian and other Northwest Coast Indigenous peoples since time before memory. Tora Zamora is a young Simshian woman from nearby Ketchikan, a member of the Ganhara or Raven Clan, also visiting Juno for celebration.
5: Tora Diwayu
4: Ganhara Not raised with much Simshian cultural knowledge, she's making up for lost time. She's a student of the Adaukh, our oral stories, and an emerging musician who mixes Simshian songs with modern riffs. It was Tora who first put in my mind the idea of holding a ceremony in Ketchikan, where she lives, near the site of that terrible incidence of violence and trauma that my grandmother and father endured all those decades
2: ago. So later
4: in the fall, I make it to Ketchikan, 300 miles south of Juneau, across a short strait of water from Metlakatla, Alaska. My friend and cultural teacher and guide during my week here is Aslidao Gitnat Angeek, who teaches Simaliach at the Ketchikan Indian community. I've never seen rain like I did in Ketchikan, and I grew up in Vancouver. But it does nothing to dampen Aslidao's passion for showing me around. We're standing in the mist at Herring Cove, where she had hoped we'd spot some black bears feasting on the spawned-out pink salmon who are also providing foods for birds, oolah, and teban seals, and sea lions. Her laughter and effervescent spirit, the way she bursts into spontaneous song to the animals, is infectious and soothing. As much as I treasure my Zoom Somaliak sessions, I instantly sense how much more easily I would learn the language my grandmother spoke fluently If only I could hang out more with Asli Dao, singing to the animals. It's later that week in Ketchikan. The day has come for our healing ceremony. Incredibly, it stops raining and the sun comes out. Ashley Dow and Tora are providing support. Athli Dow drives the three of us as close as we can get to the spot near Valner Point where my dad and grandmother survived the violence on the beach. They've gathered firewood, and Ashley Dow is chopping it as Torah strokes the fire where we are warming the drums. Torah hands me a large tuft of mountain goat wool. The fad of mountain goats is a traditional gift used to restore balance and for healing. I have a COVID face mask from my family's village of Kalum to represent my family members and the ancestors who died from all the epidemics, and a copy of my grandmother's asylum deposition describing the violence she and her children endured. I'll burn all these items in the ceremony where, under Astley Dow's leadership, we cleanse and release the ancestors and the land from the violence that happened here to my family a century ago. According to Simshan Protocol, the ceremony is too sacred to be recorded, but it's a powerful and mighty purging of anger, sadness, and pain, capped with great blessings of love, singing, drumming, and formally witnessed. After the drama and emotional release of the ceremony, the mood is one of lightness and relief. All three of us sit on the ground by the fire and sing the songs Ashley Dow has taught us. This is a traditional prayer. So when you go to help a friend or a loved one and they're sick or their spirit's been shattered, the first thing you can do for them is to help them remember who they are. Because when we get upset, when something terrible happens that we don't expect, people go into a shock. But, uh, and sometimes people can actually forget who they are. And so you help them come back to themselves by by saying this to them. I know who I am. Walayu <laughs> natnuyu. Walayu natnuyu.
2: nadam.
4: Naomi Liske teaches Simshan traditional culture to schoolchildren in Metlakatla, Alaska. She's a devoted mom who's also the director of the William Duncan Cottage Museum in Metlakatla, the house where the missionary lived out his last years and ran a school. She kindly agrees to an interview despite being exhausted from a days-long field trip with her students, asking me to forgive her if she zones out occasionally as she's still grieving the sudden death of one of her young sons. I'm struck again by the generosity of spirit I've seen in so many Simshan women, loving warriors for their culture, even as they bear heavy burdens of loss and trauma. She focuses on reviving Simshan language and culture in her work with youth and spends little time at the Duncan Cottage Museum. To this day, the missionary's memory is both cherished by some metlacatlans and reviled by others. It remains a sensitive subject. So let me ask you how you feel about William Duncan.
0: (sighs) Ooh, it's hard to find anyone that's right in the (laughs) middle. I think maybe, maybe, maybe at the very beginning he did have really good intentions but you know once somebody gets a taste of power or whatever it just he did some strange things (laughs) pretty strange things like if we didn't completely 100 percent obey his rules that he had for the entire community he would he would shut off the water to the whole community he held on to all the keys to everything in the community i know girls really couldn't go to school past fourth grade, and then that was a thing when my grandma was still around, because the only function in Western society for a girl at that time was to be a good mother and a good wife.
4: I shared with Naomi the stories of my matriarchs and my intentions for this documentary. I told her about the healing ceremony I did with Ashley Dow and Torah in Ketchikan.
0: You know that you're doing your heart's work when it's heavy, and when it's hard and when it's emotional that's how you know you found your heart's work and not everybody's fortunate to to find that since you're learning some aliyah you know that the heart is in tons of words and the heart is so important so i i think it's a beautiful thing that you're doing
4: My father kept most of his pain stored away. He kept his trauma responses of depression and addiction at bay by speaking out for Native rights. With his kindness, laughter, and acts of charity, despite having little most of his life after he became a dad, he was the founder of the BC Humor Society, whose motto was, You can't get mad when you're laughing. But when he went blind and had to go into institutional care in his late 80s, The losses of a lifetime were too much. He fell into a deep and heartbreaking depression that I truly thought I'd never see him emerge from. It was shock treatments, electroconvulsive therapy, that brought him back to us and lifted much of the darkness he had carried. In what felt like a miracle, he started telling corny jokes again.
1: I suffer from inverse paranoia. A nagging suspicion that the universe is out to do me good.
4: (laughs) He started singing songs, listening to talking books for the blind, and following world events, even his daughter's news stories on the radio. When he died two weeks shy of his 92nd birthday, I sat on his bedside, held his big strong brown Simshan hands in mine, and sang him every song I knew that he loved until he took his last breath. In 2018, I returned his ashes to the Skeena River near his family's village of Kitsumkalum, something I thought I'd do alone in a quiet moment. But my Simshian family members and those from my dad's Gisboudwara, Killer Whale clan, had other ideas. A group of us walked through the forest in a solemn procession in the early morning as I cradled my dad's ashes in a carved red-painted cedar box, torn about what I was about to do, wanting to hold on to the last vestiges of him. The chief of Kitsum-Kalem and his wife were in full regalia and walked ahead of me, their beautiful button-blanket robes swishing against the forest floor. The chief's wife wrapped me in a scarf of Northwest Coast design. A gentle rain was falling while soft rumbles of thunder echoed through the trees. It felt supernatural. The chief's high-carved cedar hat rose into the dramatic dorsal fin of a killer whale. I could feel the soft rain and the sting of new young mosquitoes on my arms as we walked towards the river. A noted Simshian scholar and language leader and her talented carver artist husband were singing, drumming, and playing a rattle. I was struck by the beauty of the ancient culture of the Simshian and how they'd welcomed me, like the chief said, as a lost daughter returning home.
2: You are listening to a tale of two Metlakatlas, my matriarchs, the missionaries, and me, from journalist Pamela Post, with help from Matthew Lazenbyder. Special thanks to Russell Wallace for providing the voice of John Post. The voices of Mary and Barbara Post were from their granddaughter and great niece, Caitlin Burns. Travel, for Pamela's reporting, was supported by the International Women's Media Foundation and its fund for Indigenous journalists reporting on missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit and transgender people. If you like the episode you just heard, check out our podcast fee's vast archive where you can find more than 300 of our past episodes. Technical production: Danielle Duval. Web producer: Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer: Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed.